Hey, it's the Covenant Courses Podcast. This is Weston Brown. This is week three of our Foundations of Effective Bible Study course, and we really hope that this is helpful to you. Today, Taylor and I are going to be getting into how the Bible is constructed. What are the various individual parts that come together to make up this book? that we call the Bible. So we'll be looking at the Old Testament and the New Testament and um, how those things came together. So um, if you are new to this, be sure to check out our course syllabus. You can find that in the show notes. You can not only listen to the podcast, you can also read along in our course text. And uh, we hope you do that. And uh, without any more delay, let's get into today's episode about how the Bible is organized. We have seemingly this one book, even though we've said it is not just one book, it's a collection of books. Right. Um, we have this one book that's divided into two primary sections. This first section we call the Old Testament, the second section we call the New Testament. Um, and if you know a little bit about that, you know that the Old Testament seemingly is primarily uh, concerned with the story of Israel, um, and the New Testament is seemingly con- primarily concerned with the story of Jesus. Um, and it can almost seem like these are just two very different things. Yeah. Um, and some people treat them like that. Like there, there is this, this God presented in the pages of the Old Testament who's very different from the God presented in the pages of the New Testament. Um, but that's not necessarily true. Uh, these two testaments, um, uh, and, and that word testament, by the way, um, some people might say that means testimony. Um, I, I really like the word covenant as a way of defining what what the, what we mean when we say this is the Old Testament or the New Testament. Um, the biblical concept of covenant is is at the forefront there. So the Old Testament would primarily be concerning itself not simply with the story of Israel, but in particular the story of God's covenant with Israel through guys like Abraham and Moses and David, whereas the New Testament is primarily the story of the quote-unquote new covenant that is made by Jesus through his death and resurrection, through the breaking of of his body and the spilling of his blood. Um, He says his blood constitutes a new covenant, and in this new covenant, forgiveness is offered to us, grace is offered to us, through Christ, yeah. and so um, that's that's I think the best way to kind of think about these designations is uh, there are two slightly different things going on storyline wise, meta narrative wise, um, but yet it all is cohesive and it all ultimately is doing what we have said in recent weeks. It is telling us the story of God's revelation of Himself to humanity and ultimately what He is doing through. Jesus Christ to restore humanity to yeah. himself. That's not just a New Testament story. Right. That is also an Old Testament story. And we see that in the fact that there are seemingly dozens, if not hundreds, of Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that are then fulfilled in the life of Christ in the New Testament. And the Old Testament is continually referenced in mm-hmm. the pages of the New Testament yeah. as well. And you get a lot of... Um... The language that Jesus uses in the New Testament for the New Covenant comes straight out of the prophets in the Old Testament. And so the, one, of the, uh, one of my professors put it this way, and I'll probably butcher his quote, but he said that the, the narrative of Scripture is like a tapestry that hangs on the pins of the covenants throughout mm, the Scripture. Yep. And so they're really like they're the pillars of what this whole thing hangs on. And the fact that they are present in both the Old and New Testament just furthers the narrative of Scripture. So I, I, I like thinking of the Testaments in that term. We have the Old Covenant and we have the New Covenant, especially since the authors think of them in those terms. Right, right. But, but there's more to it than just that. Um, the Old Testament that we have, uh, the reason why it is separate from the quote-unquote New Testament is because... Before the New Testament was ever even written, the thing that we think of as the Old Testament was already a completed and accepted work of Holy Scripture. 
and uh, accepted in that it was accepted by the Jews as being the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so sometimes you will hear the Old Testament referred to as the Hebrew Bible, which is true. Um, uh, the Hebrew Bible is also known as the Tanakh, uh, spelled T-A-N-A-K-H, Tanakh. Um, and there are 39 books of the Old Testament um, that were originally organized into three sections within the, the Tanakh or the Hebrew Bible. Um, so let's, let's tailor it, let's walk through mm-hmm. those three original sections. And, and what we'll see is the Hebrew Bible contains all the same books that our Old Testament contains, but, but they were organized a little bit differently mm-hmm. than a modern Old Testament yeah. is. And so as we're looking at, as we're looking through this at the Old Testament, when you think of the word Tanakh, if you can imagine a capital T, a capital N, and a capital K, mm. and that'll make sense shortly, um, those are the three, those really kind of outline the three uh, main sections of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. So the Tanakh, as you said, is 39 books or scrolls, and the way that they're organized is the Torah, which is going to be the first five books, or the books of Moses, the books of the law, which Torah just means law, the Nevi'im, which is the prophets, and we've got a bunch of those, and we'll go through them, and then the Ketuvim, which is the writings, um, and I've heard, I've heard a few different people call the writings a couple of other names, and sometimes it's the wisdom and then the other books or the wisdom yeah. and like a catch-all, almost like a junk drawer. But that really kind of, I think, degrades what is in uh, the the Ketuvim. So I guess do you want to just start at the beginning. We'll go through the Torah. Sure. So we've got Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. Yep. Those are your 39 scrolls. So the first five books of the Bible uh, that we've been talking about a little bit already, um, the Torah or or the law... Um, are traditionally thought of as being the books of Moses, as we said. Um, they are uh, perhaps written by Moses, perhaps not. That's not entirely clear. Um, and that includes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, and so you have a couple of different things even within those books. First of all, the book of Genesis is perhaps the most different of all of them, in my opinion, because for the first 12 chapters of Genesis, you essentially get the history of the world, yeah. right? You get creation in the first few chapters. Uh, you get the great flood. Uh, you get the story of Abraham and um, his descendants, the patriarchs of Israel, Isaac and Jacob, and, and then you get a, a really long section on this guy, Joseph, who is the son of Jacob, one of the sons of Jacob, and uh, the story of Joseph saving his family um, from famine. And so the book of Genesis itself is not, you're not going to find any like law in there. You're not going to find any rules in there. And you're not going to find anything about Moses right. in there either. But then we get into the book of Exodus, and we pick up several hundred years after the beginning of Gen- or after the end of Genesis, and the people of Israel, the the descendants of Jacob, have become slaves in the land of Egypt, where they fled during this famine and found refuge. Um, after a few hundred years, they have become slaves, and God sends, as we know, this guy Moses to lead them out of slavery and into the land that he had covenanted with Abraham in the book of Genesis to give to Abraham's descendants. Um, So we, from the very beginning, we get a taste of this covenantal nature of God, and he makes this covenant with Abraham that says, I'm going to bless your descendants, I'm going to give them this land ultimately, and then in Exodus we pick up several hundred years later with with this actually starting seemingly to come to fruition. And that's where we start to get law, right, Taylor? Right. So we've gone over a book and a half into the into the quote unquote law before you ever see the laws show up, which I guess in some ways should change the way that we think about this. And again, if if you're one that has a proclivity to see the Bible or specifically the Old Testament as kind of the laws, the rules, this this may kind of rub against that. And I think it should in a way that this, what we really get is a book and a half of prelude before you ever see any laws. And so there's a huge foundation laid as to 
why these rules even exist for the people of Israel. Well, and I, I had somebody ask me yesterday, uh, when we talk about the law, we're just talking about the Ten Commandments, right? Huh. Was the question I got. <laughs> right. Plus 600. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so the Ten Commandments uh, certainly stand out to us um, and, and are significant, um, but they are uh, not the only laws that right. we find uh, in the Torah. Instead, we find a variety of laws. Um, the Ten Commandments perhaps are uh, summative in a way, uh, or maybe uh, kind of overarching and over, you know, sort of this uh, overarching moral law that we find. But there's also ceremonial laws. Um, there are laws concerning uh, ritual cleanness and uncleanness. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's just all kinds of things, right? Yeah, there's everything. There are laws seemingly for every facet of life. Mm. Um, but I think what's maybe more important that we want to hit on is why these laws are there. Yeah. And it's explained fairly well in the book of Leviticus, especially uh, Exodus leading into Leviticus. These laws are there for Israel to be different, for Israel yeah. to be a holy nation. So God is separating them from the rest of what we see, especially in the early parts of Genesis, when things just spiral out of control real fast. And folks get real bad. Yep. And so God separates these people and gives them these laws really as an act of gracious love to set them apart, to make them look different. And what is supposed to happen is that they really stand out and, and are compelling mm-hmm. to the other nations because that's what these covenants, that's what this covenant depends on is this nation being a blessing to the other nations. Absolutely. And and these are... Uh... These are laws, I mean, there's so many of them, and they're so intricate that on one hand, there really is no way that the people can live up to them, like just on their own. There's no way that they can actually do all of these things. Um, And it's popular to view God as sort of this, um, I don't know, masochistic type guy who has, has given these intricate, detailed rules to these people and then is, like, happy to hit them with a lightning bolt when they fail. Right. Um, but that's actually not what's happening in the story. God is actually seeking to bless them greatly. He does want them to be a set-apart people. He does want them to stand out from the nations around them. And he's also given them a way to be forgiven when they fail in, as they as they inevitably do, when they fail in upholding the law that he's given them. And um, so, so the priesthood um, stands in the middle of all of this as sort of the mediators between the people of Israel and God, and the priests are tasked with performing all kinds of ritual sacrifice for the purpose of the forgiveness and removal of sin. Yeah. Um, the The problem, though, with this is that um, that that keeps needing to be re-upped every year. Mm-hmm. Every year, there is this Day of Atonement where all the people would come. And animals would be sacrificed for the purpose of the of of absolving the sin of the whole nation, but it's it's not um, it's not a sacrifice like the sacrifice Christ has made, which is this once and for all sacrifice. It's a sacrifice where we're just going to have to kill more bulls and rams and goats because the people are going to keep on sinning. They're going to keep on falling short of the law. Yeah. So um, the law is an act of graciousness, but it also shows the people their great need of God. Yeah. Like it is, it is meant to continually remind them of the fact that they're incapable of living up to his holy standard in and of themselves and on their own. Mm-hmm. And we also see that in the way that the law is given. Mm. And, and what I mean by that is the narrative progression of the Torah. So... It, it might be easy to think of Genesis as the creation story, Exodus maybe as the Exodus story, yeah. and then the other three as just kind of law books, but it is predominantly narrative-driven. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what you'll get is a situation or an instance that happens with the Israelites, and God's response to that is generally a set of laws. And those laws, when read in the context of these books, always point back to or are a response to that situation, that either rebellion or mistake or grievous sin. And so these laws unpacked over time are meant to show Israel how to be this holy nation. But it's not just, you know, the creation of the world, 
uh, exodus from slavery, get you in the desert and give you 613 laws. Mm-hmm. It really is a narrative. And I think that also puts it into perspective um, that maybe this isn't just a section on rules. Mm. Maybe this is something more. And I think that something more is the wisdom that we may be missing in the Torah if we're only seeing it as a book of rules or as five books of rules. Yeah. Yeah. And I find it incredibly helpful uh, for us uh, just in our own lives because we're, we're watching this group of people who are like God is coming through for them in unbelievable and supernatural ways. And they, they so don't want to believe it. Yeah. <laughs> like e- even when it is just like slapping them in the face, um, they, they so quickly turn away from God. Mm-hmm. Even after they've seen, you know, the armies of Pharaoh vanquished and the parting of the Red Sea and manna in the wilderness and water come from rocks and, and just all of these incredible things that God has done for them, um, they, for some reason, continue to think that they know better. And, and that's a theme that I think runs throughout the whole of Scripture in sure. many ways, from, from the garden onward, this this theme that we can learn from um, because we are people who do the exact same thing. No matter mm-hmm. what God has given us, no matter what God has done in our lives, we are still so quick to think we know better than Him yeah, um, or that we have figured out some kind of better way or better plan. Yeah. Um, so uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, um, is, is this where you should start reading the Bible? If you're just picking up the Bible for the first time and, and, and starting a read-through, is this where you would begin? Would you just start Genesis 1-1 and, and move forward? Man, I feel like that's a really loaded question. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's going to have to do a lot with some of these outside factors that we've talked about, right? Mm-hmm. Depending on depending on how you grew up and how you were presented with the Bible, in a way it could be really counterintuitive to start there. Uh, and there are a, a lot of folks that will get burnt out. I mean, Leviticus is kind of infamous for being your Bible in a year killer. Right, yeah. I mean, who gets yeah. through that much blood in a month? You, you can you can take Genesis and you can you can usually get through Exodus even when you have blueprints for a tabernacle for like eight chapters. Right. But Leviticus is where folks tend to peter out. Um, so that's a tough question. I think with enough education, Genesis is the place you need to start. But I don't know if for our Western minds, mm. saturated with kind of the, the preconceived notions that we put onto Scripture, I don't know if it's necessarily helpful. Well, and again, I think it's, it's important to point out because these are 66 distinct books. Yeah. It it is a relatively new phenomenon that that again we that we would have it in sort of this bound copy with all of these books, and that the clear starting place would, you be, know, page would, one. would be page one of these, right. and and so it, it's it's not it's not entirely clear to me if if that's how it should be read necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, if if really we should be seeking to at first engage with individual books. Um, but what, what gets a little, uh, I think challenging there is that the first part of the old Testament is a cohesive narrative, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy on into the book of Joshua judges is like telling a cohesive linear historical, um, story. Right. And so even though it is easy to get bogged down in Leviticus and Numbers, uh, I think in particular, you get into Numbers, you got all of these genealogies, and which yeah. can become seemingly endless. Um, but I, I do think it is um, at least linear. It is, yeah. And, and one of the things that I've really loved these last couple of times I've gone through, the Torah especially, is viewing these viewing this as a narrative, viewing it differently than maybe I have in the past, shows me both the reasoning for the laws that are given to Israel as well as the outcome, which is it doesn't matter what you can do externally to exist near God's presence for for any extended period of time. And as we see with the Israelites in the desert, it's years, it's decades. It doesn't matter how long you spend around that presence what we need is a changed heart to move forward. Yeah. And that's really what launches the rest of this story. Mm. Um, and so that's what we see 
coming out of Deuteronomy mm-hmm. with the death of Moses as he passes the torch to Joshua and moving right into Joshua, Judges, Samuel. One thing I would add before we move on is um, that you will also hear these five books called the Pentateuch. Oh, that's right. Um, the The word Torah is is the Hebrew word. Uh, Pentateuch is is the Greek word uh, that gets used for these five books. The Pentateuch, Penta being Greek for five, Tuch book, the book of five. Um, so if you've ever heard that word used, then we're talking about the same thing here. And that's our T in the Tanakh. Yes. We've covered one-third. Yes, so we've covered Torah. Uh, and then to, to the end, to the Nevaim, um, the Nevaim is also what we would think of as the prophets, the prophets of the Old Testament. Um, however, uh, this collection of prophets may be a little bit different from what you think of as the prophets. Sure. Um, it includes one section called the former prophets and then another section called the latter prophets. And uh, the former prophets are Joshua, Judges, and then the books of Samuel and Kings. And so Joshua and Judges, first of all, really in some ways go right alongside the Torah because they it picks up at the end of Deuteronomy with the book of Joshua and continues the story. Joshua takes over for Moses after his death. He becomes the one who leads the people into the promised land. And then the book of Judges continues that story onward into sort of the fledgling tribes of Israel in the promised land and their sort of rudimentary system of government that gets set up early on um, and all of the problems and challenges that they face. Um, But then... Notice that I said we have the books of Samuel and Kings, which yeah. you would think of as 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Taylor, why are, why are those just single books in the Tanakh? Yeah, so they're just really long scrolls, mm. right? And so the the only reason we have 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, is just due to scroll length. Mm. And so these are very long scrolls that got cut into two at maybe a decent stopping point, but have gotten passed down as what were two books, now we have as four books in our collection. Um, And again, this is one of those times where we've talked about maybe those headings and chapter verse numbers always not always being super helpful. How about cutting books in half? Not always super helpful. Because we think of them as completely separate stories. The same way You want to think of Joshua and Judges as separate stories. They're separate books. And while they are separate scrolls, again, we're still telling one story. So that's not always super helpful. No, it's not. And it gets a little confusing, too, when we get into the New Testament, because we have a number of books in the New Testament that are first and seconds. Which, Um, yeah, which aren't just broken up. Yeah, which are not single books that have been broken up, like first and second uh, Timothy, mm-hmm. our, our first and second Timothy, because they are separate letters written by Paul to Timothy. Right. Um, and so... What, this wasn't Samuel writing two different letters. That's this right. Was, yeah. That's correct. Um, so the former prophets are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, and then the latter prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Um, well, hold on. Before we move on from that, why are these four considered former prophets? Because that's something in our English Bibles that's not very common. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, it's it's not uh, it's not entirely clear to me um, why we would think of these as prophets, um, because Joshua and Judges are really seemingly books of history, as are Samuel and Kings. Um, now they do deal with prophecy on some level. Um, particularly in Samuel, because of uh, the prophecies concerning David, um, the king that comes, uh, you know, and ultimately ascends to be the greatest king in the history of Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we we learn about um, his story to some extent here, but um, but but it's not like in your face prophecy in the way that some of these others are like Isaiah like yeah. it, it's not this uh you know heavily metaphorical or sort of like oracle based prophecy that we get in some of the other prophets so i don't i don't know what would you say yeah to that? so i think maybe in a way that changes the way um it certainly changes the way that the israelites looked at prophets mm-hmm. 
Uh, and then once you get into Samuel and especially Kings, this is something that I found fascinating was the book of Kings deals with prophets as much as, if not more than the Kings themselves. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's one that's actually, it's, it's full of prophets as characters in the mm. story. And by characters, I don't, I don't mean fictional characters. I mean, just yeah. as, as figures, as figures in the story, um, and with every king, there seems to be an associated prophet that says something to them or deals with them or has an oracle for them, though it's not, like you said, not to the length of what we have in the actual books of the prophets. Yeah. So I, I think maybe it's important just to realize that prophets, the role of a prophet and what prophecy entails is not just this forward-looking kind of foretelling uh, that we might assign to the the major prophets. Yeah, and it shows us that the prophets were significant figures in just the life of Israel yeah. as well. Um, yeah, when we consider that it's it's someone who's speaking on behalf of God, we see God's close connection in these books, yeah. where seemingly the people were just off the rails. Yeah, so one way to think of the prophets is, is the prophets are sort of the preachers or pastors of the Old Testament. Um, the priests are not really the ones who function in that role. That's right. The priests' role uh, are, are much more ceremonial in nature and ritualistic in nature, and it has to do with the law, as we've talked about. It has to do with this system that the Lord has given to them, but but it's not necessarily as if the priests are the ones declaring God's word to the people. That's really the job of prophets in mm -hmm. the Old Testament. Um, and so we get these historical books that tell us about prophets and give us, on some levels, some prophecy. But then you actually have books that are of individual prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the ones who are included in the latter prophets. And then within the latter prophets, you also get what's called the Book of the Twelve, um, which are the prophets that we would think of as the minor prophets. Um, and that's Hosea, Joel, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. You'd know all those if you went to vacation Bible school. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, those are, those are clearly books of, of prophecy, not just right. books about prophets, but books of prophecy. Um, so that's the N in Tanakh. That's the Nevi'im, or the books of the prophets. And then we get into the Ketuvim, or the writings. And the writings is, you know, you said this may be a, 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 a diminishment of what it is, but it is sort of a grab bag of different kinds of literature, right, Taylor? Yeah. Yeah, so we've got some of the obvious standouts, uh, which are poetry or considered the wisdom books. And generally speaking, or most commonly, uh, that's the Psalms, Proverbs, and Job. Uh, but yeah. then we also have some other things going on. There seems to be prophecy in the writings in Daniel. Yeah. There's just kind of these like extra historical books like Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles, maybe even Esther. Yeah. Uh, and then there's some other stuff that kind of fits into one of the categories. Uh, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, maybe their poetry, maybe their wisdom. Certainly there's a little bit of both going on. But mm. yeah, it's a. I hate using the term junk drawer. I hate using the term catch-all, but it does have a lot going on. It does. Um, you know, the, the books of the law are very specific. And as we've said, the prophets are pretty specific. But then... You do get the poetical literature, the Psalms, Proverbs. I think those those are clear to us when we read those. We I think we can easily accept that those things are poetry. Or if you've read Song of Solomon, I think that seems seems like poetry to us. Right. Um, and uh, yet Hebrew poetry is a little bit different from what we think of as Western poetry. Um, so, for example, the Book of Job, which is included as a book of poetry, mm -hmm. and yet Taylor, I've I've read Job. It does not seem like you know, like roses are red, violets are blue yeah. type poetry, right? It seems more like a narrative, right? Yeah, yeah it does. Um, and Job's one of those weird ones because whenever folks try to read the Bible as kind of like a, in a, maybe a chronological order, yeah. Job's one of those books that you're not sure where to put. Right, yeah. And so I've seen it put way in the beginning that it's like, it's you know, you read Genesis and then you stop halfway through and read some Job. <laughs> right. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's certainly different. But if we understand uh, what Hebrew poetry looks like, and I'm sure we'll get into this later because we certainly don't have time to cover it now. Job <laughs> is mainly a collection of long poems. Yeah. Every one of these uh, dialogue pieces is just sections of poetry. Yeah. So some people think that the book of Job is possibly the oldest book right. in the Old Testament, that it was possibly written even before uh, the book of Genesis. And so that's why in some Bible reading plans, um, you'll read the first 12 chapters or so of Genesis, and then you'll stop and take a little break and read the book of Job and then come back to Genesis. Yeah. And... Um, so yeah, but but you're right. It is uh, just a collection of extended um, poems, even though they may not necessarily read to us as poetry. Um, and then you mentioned also we do have the Book of Daniel. I mean, Daniel is definitely a book of prophecy mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, it is a little bit more narrative based than some of the other prophets, like Isaiah, for example. Um, but there is some significant prophecy in Daniel. Um, and so we would, if we were putting it together, we would probably throw it in with the latter prophets, but it gets included here in the Ketuvim. Um, and then Ezra and Nehemiah are books that uh, come after the exile of Israel in Babylon. Um, the book of Esther seemingly happens during that exile um, at some point in time. And um, then you have the book of Chronicles as well, which we get as first and second Chronicles yeah, in our Bibles, one. Um, but it originally also was just one book. So our Old Testament, um, if, that's, if that's the Tanakh, uh, including the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, um, and the way that it's organized, our, organi- our Old Testament is organized a bit differently, um, albeit in three parts as well. Like, we could basically say that there is um, a historical section, um, a poetical section, and a prophetic section to the way that our Old Testament is organized. And so we think of the books of history as being Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Sure. then we think of the books of poetry as being maybe Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Most of those seem poetical to us. Um, and then we have the books of prophecy, and we would think of these as major prophets and minor prophets, yeah. right? Major prophets being Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, the book of Lamentations written by Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel and Daniel. We throw in Daniel in the mix here. Um, and then the minor prophets that we've talked about before, um, those all basically stay the same. There's no change there. That is the book of the Twelve, yeah. um, and uh, nothing really changes. So that's the way that our Old Testament is organized. Um, it's important to note uh, that the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew to Greek at some point. That Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. And it becomes, perhaps, during the time of Jesus, the most accessible form of the Old Testament scriptures for people in Jesus' day. My understanding, Taylor, is that by the time that Jesus comes around, that Hebrew, as sort of an everyday spoken language, has, has mostly died out. Right. Um, I, think, I think Jesus knew Hebrew um, it's not that people didn't know it. it. It's just that it wasn't as much of like a sort of an everyday spoken language anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it was still certainly used in sort of formal um, settings, mm-hmm. um, but uh, Greek was a, a, a significant language. Aramaic was a significant language as well. And so um, what's interesting is many of the Old Testament references that we see, like when we see the Old Testament quoted directly in the New Testament, sometimes um, those quotes will look a little bit different. And uh, a lot of that is because the New Testament writers were quoting from the Greek and not the Hebrew. They That's were right. quoting from the Septuagint and not the, the, this, this Greek translation of the Tanakh. Yeah. Um, and so some of how the Old Testament is put together in our Bibles is also reflective of that. So, um, so that's the Old Testament, um, just in a quick, you know, flyover nutshell. 
It's um, easy, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll spend more time getting into it. But um, the thing to point out here is that um, by the time of Christ, this is an established canon of literature, of, uh, you know, of literature that is thought to be the Word of God yeah. by, by the Jewish people. Um, and that word canon um, is just a word that describes sacred writings, uh, a collection of sacred writings. And so you'll hear us use that. You'll hear us say that things are canonical, meaning that they've been accepted as Holy Scripture. Um, or we might talk about the process of canonization, in which a book is formally accepted as Holy Scripture. Um, but in general, you will hear this collection... Uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, sometimes referred to as the canon. So if you hear us say that, that's what we mean. Let's jump into the New Testament, and we'll talk about that outline as well. Yeah, so the New Testament is very different, um, and I don't mean the content of the New Testament so much as I mean the way that the New Testament came together. Um, as we said, the Old Testament came together over a significant period of time and covers, in terms of its content, a significant period of time, whereas the New Testament was written over roughly a 50-year period. So we go from the Old Testament, which, you know, 1400 to 1600 years, um, New Testament, we're talking about 50 years of time. Yeah. And the, and the span that the, like that the books cover is, is that same span of time, roughly. Um, and, and that would be somewhere around 50 AD. So, so if you, if you think about it in the most simplistic terms, let's say Jesus is born in the year one, right? <laughs> And, and Jesus dies in the year 30, right? Like, that's that's probably not exactly yeah. the case. We're approximating. Yeah, we're approximating, certainly, um, for the sake of ease here. But within 20 years of Jesus' death, some of the first books of the New Testament are starting to be written. Um, and probably the first books of the New Testament were written by Paul. Uh, probably some of his early letters... Um, are the earliest books of the New Testament. So then why doesn't our New Testament start with Paul? Because what we get instead are yeah. the four Gospels. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, so let's let's break it down real quick and, sure. and, and just give everybody a sense of what is in the New Testament. The whole section does begin with these four Gospels, and, and, and when we say Gospel, we don't we certainly mean the message of Jesus, this good news of Jesus, but gospel in and of itself has has really come to be almost its own form of literary genre. Like these these books are a very specific thing in that they are uh, biographies of Jesus. Um, and what's interesting is that they are not exhaustive biographies. If you've read yeah. them, right, they don't start with Jesus's birth and then go uh, every year from there until he begins his his ministry. Um, there's a, a huge block of time that's completely left out by the Gospels, and so we get uh, very briefly some some images around his birth. Um, we get a little bit, possibly around the time that he's you know, 11, 12 years old, he's a young boy, and then we get, uh, he's a, a full-grown adult, you know, late 20s, early 30s, when mm -hmm. we pick up again. And so the purpose of these is not necessarily to tell his life story, the purpose of the Gospels is, I think, to display his divinity yeah. as the Son of God and to declare his gospel message of redemption to the world. Yeah, and the, this may be another kind of Western thought, right? We we would expect, if you tell me that the first four books in the New Testament are biographical, that that brings something immediately to mind. I, I would expect that exhaustive, strictly chronological view yeah. of someone's life. Yeah. Um, but in the same way that we've just briefly mentioned, Hebrew poetry doesn't work the way Western poetry works. Um these gospel accounts, these biographical accounts, don't work the way that our modern 
minds want to think about biographies. Yeah, I think that's true to an extent. Um, one of the things to recognize here is that what you have are four separate, essentially eyewitness accounts of the life of Christ. And so because of that, there are similarities and differences among the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often known as the synoptic Gospels, meaning a lot of the content is the same, even though it is written in the voice of that particular author. Um, a lot of the stories or parables are the same among those three books. And then you get into the Gospel of John, and it is uh, just sort of a distinct gospel account in mm -hmm. that um, it's often thought of as the more spiritual of the three gospels, not meaning that the three synoptic gospels are unspiritual, um, but meaning that the, the gospel of John is a little bit more, uh, I, I want to use the word esoteric, but that's probably not the right word. It, <laughs> it is just a little bit more, um, uh, le maybe less down to earth. It's, yeah, more spiritual. Yeah, um, that, that that word, I think, is just maybe a little bit ambiguous. Yeah. Um, but if you read them, I think you'll understand what we're talking about here. Um, it uh, The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are a little bit more concerned with the narrative, um, where I think John is a little bit more con concerned with the, the underlying meaning behind a lot of the narrative. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, you have four separate accounts... Um, and, you know, the, the kind of the classic thing here is to think of this as, uh, you know, four guys who saw the same car wreck, you know, and who are then having to tell their story to the police. More than likely, there are going to be a lot of similarities among their stories, um, but quite possibly there are going to be some differences as well. Yeah. Or, um, and, and those differences are not... Um, errors, what those differences wind up being are differences of perspective um, or vantage points, so to speak. Yeah, not to mention that these guys, in all likelihood, had different audiences to which they were writing originally, right. and thus had a different purpose in mind. So it's it's not only that they're remembering things in, in their own way, but they're also writing very much with an agenda. And writing to an audience with a purpose, and those purposes, while telling the same story and coming to the same truth, are going to be a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah, so Matthew, for example. Matthew is, is famous for uh, seemingly having been primarily written to Jewish people. That's right. Um, and so some of the language that's used, some of the stories that are told are meant to, I think, illuminate for Jewish people that this is truly the Messiah. Yeah, versus Mark. Mm -hmm. who was most likely writing to a Roman audience, right. who probably didn't have as much knowledge about Jewish feasts and holidays and practices, and was disconnected by a vast geographical distance as well as a cultural distance from this audience. That's right. And Mark was probably the first of these four to actually be written. It's now the, you're in hot water. It's the shortest of all of them. And um, it's sort of the most succinct. Um, as you get a little farther down the road, it's it's possible that some of the other gospel writers borrowed from earlier gospel writers. So it wasn't as if they were all um, sort of coming up with this on their own. There certainly, I think, is some interaction here among mm -hmm. them. Um, but those are the four gospels. And even within that literary genre of gospel, you find other literary genres. Like So you find parable, for example. Uh, you find prophecy mm -hmm. in the Gospels. Um, those things are all there. Uh, from there, we have one book of history in the New Testament versus a myriad of books of history in the Old Testament, and that one book of history is the book of Acts. Yeah. Um, and Acts is, one of, I think, one of my favorite books to just read because it really does kind of read like an adventure novel, Yeah. right? Um, it, is, it is, to me, unlike any other book in the scripture. Um, but, Taylor, it does connect directly to one of the four Gospels, right? That's right, yeah. So Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke, um, this is, Acts is kind of the second of his two-part work. Um, and so if we think of the four Gospels as the story of Jesus, Acts is the story of Jesus' church and its kind of grassroots beginning and how that begins to spread really rapidly. And so Luke... Really, we should be calling it Luke Acts as, as one work, 
uh, a two-part work. Luke is the author of both, and that's always kind of bothered me, that he's separated by John. <laughs> well, you asked a minute ago, like, why don't we start with just the... Why are these not just presented in the order in which the books were written? Right. And um, the, the, the thing that bothers me most is the fact that we have the book of John in between Luke and Acts. It's like, yeah. why couldn't we have wrapped up the Gospels with Luke and then just immediately gone into Acts? Sure. Um, I don't know why that is, but what you will find if you read the end of Luke and then immediately start the beginning of the book of Acts, you will see what we mean, like these two things dovetail together mm-hmm. perfectly. And and Acts largely tells the story of the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, uh, the beginnings of the early church, uh, the apostles who've been commissioned by Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations, uh, just the early stages of that happening and sort of the organization of the church forming. Um, but then the bulk of Acts is the story of the Apostle Paul and his conversion experience and his early missionary journeys, of which he made at least three, possibly four missionary journeys. We get, uh, I think, three of those in Mm -hmm. the book of Acts. So so that's uh, significant and um, the only work of history in the New Testament. The bulk of the New Testament uh, are not Gospels, they're not books of history, Uh, they're letters. uh, And this is something we don't really get in the Old Testament at all. Um, we get all of this like correspondence in the New Testament. Yeah. Again, Paul is the center of most of this. He is the primary author of the bulk of the New Testament. But you know, so much of this is him writing to uh, either places that he hopes to visit at some point, or churches that he has planted, and is as sort of a spiritual father writing to mm-hmm. give guidance and wisdom. Yeah. And so Paul is unpacking this good news of the revelation of Jesus that he encountered and how this should transform a believer's life. Uh, And he's doing so while also using the Old Testament and using um, the stories from these gospel accounts and showing how this narrative points to Jesus and then points forward to the consummation of all of this. But why do we have these letters that were written to churches from 2,000 years ago? Well, they're f- full of theology, right? They're full of theology and full of doctrine. Um, you know, so the sort of the quintessential theological treatise of the New Testament is the Book of Romans, mm-hmm. and I mean, it is it is Paul unpacking his um, his primary theological views for for a church he's never even been to. That's right. Um, at this point in time, like he's writing to the church in Rome, and and that's somewhere he hopes to go at some point. Um, but he hasn't been yet. He does ultimately get there, um, and perhaps you know uh, even travels on from Rome. Um, it, it is traditionally thought that Paul perhaps made it as far as Spain um, as a missionary um, before coming back to Rome, where he was uh, conceivably martyred in Rome. Um, but but yeah, I mean we we glean so much not only about the inner workings of the early church, but also the way that gospel theology was driving their life and practice and action. And we see that things were not perfect either. We see that there were a lot of problems. And so often Paul is writing to help correct. Um, incorrect thinking in people or uh, disputes or challenges that are going on in the life of the church. And so these things are really important for us. One of the big things that we have to ask the question of, you know, whether we're reading Acts or we're reading Romans um, or any of these other books is, is, is what we're reading prescriptive or descriptive? Yeah, that's a great question. So, the, the you know, because a question we will ultimately ask is, what do we do with this stuff? And answering the question of whether or not it's prescriptive or descriptive is critical. So with something like the book of Acts, Acts is presented as a linear historical narrative, right? We're, we're starting at point A, we're going to point B, point C, so on and so forth. And Luke is describing for us, it is descriptive, he's describing for us what happened. So at Pentecost, uh, the Holy Spirit descended, it looked like tongues of fire, it falls on the apostles and others, um, they begin speaking in tongues, and that is what happened, Luke is saying. 
Um, at no point is Luke trying to make the case that this exact same thing in this exact same way should be the thing that everybody um, experiences or that happens to everybody. It's not prescriptive. He's not telling us to do something or not do something. He's just telling us what happened. Mm -hmm. That changes when we get into the letters of Paul, largely. And we have to do a little bit of um, deciphering here in some of this. But but I think largely Paul's writing is meant to be prescriptive to his audience. Yeah. Um, and what we have to do in parsing that out is, is figure out, is this applicable to us today? Is this something we should still be adhering to or following? Um, and... You know that can get controversial real quick, sure, um, with people. But by and large, Paul's writing is prescriptive, meaning he is writing it so that people will take it to heart and live it out. Yeah, and his writing is a perfect example of the Bible being written for us, but not to us. Yeah, uh, yeah. Paul didn't write any of these letters to Taylor. That's right. Right. He didn't write them to Covenant Shreveport. That's right. Um, he wrote them to the churches, the people in the churches that lived in these areas. But these letters were, th these letters traveled. They moved around. They were meant to be passed around in some cases. And now we have them. And so like you said, we, we have to do the hard and important work of figuring out the intention, pa both Paul's intention and as we believe it, the Holy Spirit's intention in yeah. bringing these letters now to us. That's right. And, and what gets challenging here is, you know, Paul says some things that, um, for our modern culture are, are hard to swallow. You know, like Paul says things like, I do not permit a woman to teach. Um, right. right. Which in our culture today um, is, is pretty incredible. In, in the culture of Paul's day, um, that would have not been a remarkable thing to say at all, because certainly in Judaism, there weren't women who were teaching. Um, and, uh, you know, Paul does some things that, that, that were remarkable for his period of time, but are not remarkable in our period of time. For example, he he says that women should be allowed to learn yeah. within the church, which again would not have necessarily been the case in in other religious systems, primarily Judaism. So anyway, we have to uh, you know look through this contextual lens as we're examining all of this. We have to look at the time period, the cultural um, aspects of the you know the period and place that he was writing into and. And then really seek to discern, I think, with, through the help of the Holy Spirit, the way that we apply this to our world and life today. Yeah. And and with some of these things, especially some of these sort of secondary matters, people land in different places. And um, I think there are a lot of things, and we'll talk more about some of these, um, but I, I think there are a lot of these where we can land in different places and still be brothers and sisters in Christ because they're they're not primary matters of faith. That's right. Um, and so in the future, we'll go over the importance of historical, cultural context. Yeah. And not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. That's that's a huge, that's a key player yep. in your interpretation. Yeah. Uh, but for now, I guess that's, man, that's, that's a rabbit hole that I know you don't want me to, to <laughs> well, jump so, into. <laughs> so there's one final book in the New yeah. Testament, and it is the only book of prophecy in the New Testament. Um, and, and what I find with this book is it's either the book that people have read a million times or it's the book they've never or even never. touched. Yeah. And it's the book of Revelation. Wait, um, not Revelations? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. In, in some Bibles, you'll see it called the, Apoc the Apocalypse of John Yeah, um, is another name that will be given to it. And, and it is prophecy. It's also sort of a specific liter literary genre known as Apocalypse as yeah. well, which has to do with kind of the end of all things, the end of time. Which, coincidentally and conveniently, Revelation is just a translation of apocalypse, yeah. right? Yeah, to yeah. just to reveal. So that maybe should set some things off, maybe raise some red flags immediately, that apocalypse is not translated directly into destruction. That's right. That's right. Um, it's it's like last things. Yeah. You know? Um, so, so yeah, that's where we wrap up uh, the New Testament. And um, oh, what a cliffhanger! You're not is. even going to talk about it. Well, no, we are. Okay. Um, to a certain extent, but you know what's interesting, and we'll get into this uh, in in weeks to come. But you know, these books are not written and like immediately accepted by people as holy scripture. Um, and so, what winds up happening is. Uh, you know, at this point, as we said, the, the thing we think of as the Old Testament, it is already like kind of 
signed, sealed, delivered. People mm -hmm. th think of it as the word of God. With these books of the New Testament, and especially when we start asking the question, like, how did we get the, the Bible? Right. In many ways, we're asking, how did the New Testament come to be the New Testament? How did these books that we just talked about, how did they become accepted as Holy Scripture? How did they become canonized? And that's actually something that doesn't take place for several hundred years. It really doesn't happen um, until yeah, the 300s and 400s. Um, and we will talk at great length about how all that took place. Um, but, but it is to say there are some books here that are very quickly received by people as, as Holy Scripture. It's possible even some of Paul's writings in his lifetime were thought of as being Holy Scripture. And then there are some books here in the New Testament that it takes a longer period of time and people are less um, enthused about accepting <laughs> them as Holy Scripture. And one of those is Revelation. Yeah. Revelation is one of the last books to be um, accepted as the Word of God by, by the church. But the important thing, I guess, to note here is that the books are being circulated. Yes. They are being spread around. They are, quote-unquote, globally being read in the early church. This is not, you know, somebody off in a corner that's just kind of creating this canon on their own and then saying, hey, look, that's guys, right. New Testament. That's right. And and I think it's, again, important to point out these are all individual books, and people are engaging with them originally as individual books. And so you will have some churches that have some of these, but not all of these. And, you know, some, chur some churches like Rome has this letter that Paul sent to them, and they've maybe copied it and given it to some other people, but everybody doesn't necessarily have the Book of Romans, right? right? But, but then you've got these folks over here in Galatia that have a letter that Paul sent to them, and these folks in Thessalonica that have letters that Paul sent to them. And slowly over time, those things get copied and get disseminated around essentially the Roman Empire, the Western and Eastern Roman Empire, mm -hmm. um, and which, you know, for these folks was virtually the known world at yeah. that point in time, you know? And, and so I've, I've heard the case made um, that when Jesus told the disciples to go to the ends of the earth, that in many ways the apostles may have thought that that had basically been accomplished. It, it seems to be the case that some of the early church fathers basically thought that that had been accomplished because their knowledge of the known world only went so far at yeah. this point in time. So you don't have early church fathers who are going, yeah, but we haven't been to Japan yet, yeah. right? They we don't got to make it to the Americas. They don't know that that exists. Right. Um, and so some of these guys kind of thought, oh, we've been to the ends of the earth. Like like this 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 word has gone out. Um, but obviously the the longer we go, the, the more um, that, uh, you know, exploration and expansion happens, the more that, you know, the Roman Empire, uh, you know, eventually implodes and, yeah, all, I mean, all this stuff, history happens. And um, the Word of God continues uh, even today to to go out to new ears and new places and new peoples. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a pretty remarkable thing. But, but yeah, so it, this is a slow process, um, but it is, you know, kind of what happened. Uh all right, I want to talk about one more thing before we wrap up today, and that is uh, something called the Apocrypha, um, because this is a question I get a lot, particularly from people who have uh, grown up in uh, more of a liturgical church tradition. Maybe you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church uh, or the Episcopal Church or the Lutheran Church or something like that, and uh, what you know is that in, uh, for example, a Roman Catholic Bible... Um, there are more than 66 books. That's right. Um, and that's because there are these other books that are historically thought of as being the Apocrypha, um, or as being apocryphal, which is just a word uh, that means something like of dubious origin. Um, and uh, these books are interesting to me, um, and they've been debated throughout church history. Um for most of church history, um, these books that make up the Apocrypha um, are books that were written during that intertestamental period we were talking about earlier, that 400-ish year period between the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament. But they're books that were never accepted by the Jews as being Holy Scripture. They weren't included in the Tanakh, um, even though in some Greek translations of the Tanakh they are included. 
Um, and there are different lists of these as well. So like there's not even a like a agreed upon list of what all of the apocryphal books are. Mm-hmm. Um, but for many centuries now, Bibles have included them. Um, Protestant Bibles largely do not. Um, but many Bibles do, and in a lot of Bibles, they'll either be at the end of your Bible, or they might be in the middle of your Bible, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the um, the witness of church history is that for, for most of their existence, these books have been thought of as being good books that are uh, maybe helpful um, or profitable to read and study, but not necessarily Holy Scripture. Right. Um, in the same way, Taylor, that you and I read a lot of good, profitable books today that are written by godly people, but are not Holy Scripture. Sure. Right? Like, that that don't rise to that level. There are problems, you know, that, I mean, what, what book do you read where you go, I agree 100% with everything yeah. I read in that book, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I kind of think of the Apocrypha in the same way, but these books have been a sort of battleground for a long time, mm-hmm. um, particularly in the wake of the Protestant Reformation. This was something that Martin Luther, um, who instigated the Protestant Reformation, uh, had a, a lot of opinions on. Um, Luther wrote his own translation of the Bible. He translated it into German and I, I believe he is the original kind of source of calling these the the uh, apocrypha, um, and he includes them in his Bible um, in the middle, and you know basically says these things are good for us to read, but but we shouldn't be like forming doctrine out of them, mm-hmm. um, and that had been the basic practice of the Roman Catholic Church for most of history. However. There are some things that we think of as Roman Catholic doctrines that do come from the Apocrypha. So things like purgatory, for example, um, is something that kind of comes out of the Apocrypha, or praying for the dead, mm-hmm. um, that kind of thing we find in the pages of the Apocrypha. Um, and so your short answer to this would be, go ahead and read them, right? Go ahead and read them. They're, they can be beneficial. Yeah, but, but don't we... but don't read them as if they are Scripture. Right, and and I, you know, I think what what gets confusing here is the fact that um, if you are reading the apocrypha, you you are reading these books kind of butted up next to holy scripture. Yeah, and so um, I think that can be confusing because you 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 don't know what to do with them. Yeah. you know, when when they're sort of presented in that same format, there there isn't any other book you read. You know, if you read a C.S. Lewis book. Um, it's not it's not being presented in a bound copy of Holy Scripture, right? You're reading it literally in a separate book. Yeah. Um, you would never, you know, interact with it in the way that you interact with the Bible, and and yet for some reason I think with with these books our tendency is to want to do that. But but no, I I I don't think they are to be avoided per se or shunned or burned or anything like that. Um, I think there can be some value there if we treat them as what they are, which is not Holy Scripture. These yeah. are not the Word of God. And some of those are easy, like Maccabees. Yeah. First and Second Maccabees are mainly just historical books. Right. Some of them are a little harder, and you and I talked a little bit about this, but like the wisdom books that are found in the Apocrypha yeah. may be a little more difficult to approach mentally because of what you just said. For one, they're kind of presented alongside... Scripture. That's right. But two, there there seem to be some conflicts. Yeah. Every now and then, and at least, you know, maybe that's why they're not in the canon. Mm-hmm. Well, I would have to assume. But so they're good to read, but they're not good to think of as scripture. Yeah. So we'll talk some in the future about the the guidelines for canonicity or canonization. The the some of the things that the early church fathers looked at when they were determining what was holy scripture. And what was not, um, and and one of those things is uh, called Catholicity, meaning that this is a book that is essentially universally accepted by the Church as the Word of God, and the Apocrypha is the opposite of a Catholic book in the sense that Catholic meaning universal, um, because they just never have been universally accepted as the Word of God. Um, so you have different groups who think different things. 
um, about these, and um, and you know, in most Protestant Bibles, they're they're scrubbed completely. It's yeah. it's like we don't even need to talk about these or think about these or read these. Um, and I can understand that uh, because I I can totally see why it would be confusing for people. Um, and so, so anyway, uh, I get a lot of questions about this because we have folks in our church who grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, and and you know want to know what what these are and what do we do with these. Um, I, I I will point out this for um, the bulk of church history, these things were not at all considered to be holy scripture. Um, after the Protestant Reformation, though, the Roman Catholic Church launches what's now known as the Counter Reformation in which they pushed back against the growing Protestant Church. And um, a significant moment in the Counter-Reformation is the Council of Trent, which started in 1545. And at the Council of Trent, um, one of the things the Roman Catholic Church does is they do essentially double down on the Apocrypha. And and at that point in time, they say, no, 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 this is on par with Scripture. Hmm. Um, and it, the, the Roman Catholic Church does at that point, in a sense, say, no, this is... Um, this is the part of the Bible. Um, and, and so we would not agree with that. Um, and, and I would point out simply the fact that it took 1,500 years, well, more than 1,500 years, for the Roman Catholic Church to even say that. And it is in the wake of this massive upheaval in the church that has taken place because of the Protestant, Protestant Reformation, um, which makes it suspect as well. So... Um, some people view it as scripture. Um, mm-hmm. I think most people don't. Um, but it's not necessarily something that's harmful or or evil either. Right. Um, so anyway, uh, I just wanted to make a few comments on that because it's something that comes up periodically, um, and you know, might be a part of the Bible that you're reading even today. So, yep. all right, Taylor. Uh, anything else you want to throw in before we wrap up? Oh, you mean should I add more to the apocrypha? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think we covered it. Two Testaments broken down, Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. Hopefully we can remember all of those. And then our New Testament with the Gospels, the history book of Acts, and then our letters. And lastly, the prophetic book in the New Testament of Revelation. That is our Bible, 66 books. Yeah, so where we're going from here is we're really going to get into how we got the Bible. And we've touched on some of these things, but in our next session, um, we're going to begin the process with the Old Testament and just talk more about how we got it, how it came to us, how we know this is the Word of God. And uh, we'll just dig deeper into all of those questions. So uh, look forward to joining you guys next time.